0: Images of Jesus, part 37, welcome back to, it's been a couple of months or so since we uh, were last in the book of Mark and we're almost finished and the good stuff is upon us, it's coming. Uh, excited about the message tonight, I'm glad you're here, uh, it's been a, I got to preach in another church this morning and it's cool to be here, um, I'm excited to be here and to get to this message tonight, I think it's uh it's filled with gospel stuff. Before we get into the heart of the message, I want to review a bit of the series and, and what's happened in the last couple of days of, of what's happened, uh, what Megan just read. But we we'll get to that. This images of Jesus, the, 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 this slide picture that we have up here it, is the concept of the book of Mark. The book of Mark is very quick hitting, moving from piece to piece to piece to piece. And it's very much like we've related throughout the series, like walking through a museum i 'm the life of Christ, and we, we go into one wing in the museum and now we go into another, and now we 're going into the like the the final hours of his life he 's praying in the garden the the last supper has just happened just previous to the verses that we, that Megan just read the uh, the Last Supper has just happened, and just previous to that, Jesus has been very, very, very confrontational to the Pharisees and the religious leaders that will eventually be the ones to gather enough weight to uh, to kill Jesus. So everything that's, that's going on in the lives of, of these disciples and the life of Christ is very intense. It's very powerful. Stuff is is really happening. And so this part of the museum of the book of Mark that we're looking through is filled with intensity. And Jesus is just a, a, around the, the Last Supper, which is celebrating the Passover, a big deal in the life of the Jew, has said, one of you guys is going to betray me. And so... While it's been a long time for us since we visited this, the, the book of Mark, for these guys just a few minutes ago, a few minutes before the conversation between Peter and Jesus, and then when he goes into the garden, has happened, just a few minutes before that is when he has been around the table very, very sorrowful, um, and the disciples noticed it and, and remarked on it, and he, he they said, one of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to die, and so he, he makes some predictions here. As one other thing that we need to note, Mark is, is writing the book of the, this gospel, and Peter is feeding him the information. He's the author, and Peter is the, the, the guy who who knows and, and all, saw all this stuff happen. But Mark is writing to his intended audience are Roman Christians about 40 years after the life of Christ. And Nero is ruling Rome, as Mark writes, and Nero has made it against the law and is killing Christians for professing Christ. And so these people who are reading who Mark intended to to read this account of the life of Christ, have very dire consequences in, in front of them if they profess Christ. And so, as Jesus talks about, prays about, God with you all things are possible, please let this cup pass from me, don't make me have to suffer, understand that these people that Mark is writing to are very acquainted with the possibility of suffering. Nero, the way he killed most of his Christians was to what amounts to like a big telephone pole with a sharp point on the end and he would impale them on it and then set them on fire. That's the not only they're going to get killed, they're going to get killed in a very humiliating and gruesome way. So that's what's happening for these people and that's what's happening in the book of Mark to kind of set the scene for what we'll get to tonight. Uh, before we get into the message, let's pray. God, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for how you've revealed your character to our lives and You've provided us insight into who You are and who Your Son is, Father, and and I thank You for the gift of Scripture, God. I pray that You would uh, cause us to come at Scripture tonight uh, fully understanding and fully aware that we are incomplete and Scripture is designed to complete us, and You have providentially brought Scripture to us to uh, attack our hearts, show us the Gospel, and show us Your Son, Jesus, I pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would remind us of those things. I also pray that you would free us from distraction, uh, bind the enemy from this place tonight, Father, that we would uh, come to an encounter with you and with your son through your word. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, verse 26 through 42. Before we get it, I, I want to I lay out uh, a banner, if you will the message. I want you to be looking for these two things. First, Jesus' love and acceptance and ministry have nothing to do with you. Love and his ministry and his acceptance, all that he does, have nothing to do with you. And by that, I mean, obviously it has everything to do with you. That's why he, he did it. But it has nothing to do with your reaction or the things that you do or how you please him or how you serve him or the kind of stuff that you do. As we walk through here, watch his disciples and watch Peter and watch all these guys trying to do things for Christ and then failing, which is the second thing. Peter's focus is on what he will do for Jesus, and the result is failure. So notice the gospel-centricness of the first statement and the self-religion-centeredness of of the second statement. Peter and all the disciples are focused on themselves. Jesus, here's what I'm going to do for you, or here's what I'm not going to do you. And they fail every time. And Jesus' actions are that I'm going to continue on the mission, the hard, hard mission that I know God has called me to, and you're going to fall away, but I'm going to keep and stay on my mission. So it's it's a beautiful picture of Jesus being gospel-centric and Peter and the rest of the disciples being religion-centric. So watch for those things, and, and I'll note them as we walk through these, uh, these few verses. I want to bring some... Uh, some clarity also to it, throw that that image up there, Kyle, if you would. Uh, this is uh, to give you some some framework of what 's happening. You see the top right hand corner is uh, the garden of Gethsemane, and then the the arrow that is coming is pointing to the garden of Gethsemane is where the upper room was, so the upper room is where they have the Passover where they 've just finished eating this meal, and Jesus had said, "One of you is going to betray me and Judas takes off, and then Jesus and the other 11 disciples follow the path of this little red line there and get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, And you can also see some of the, the, in the top left-hand corner, Golgotha, which is a traditional location. That's where they're going to wind up when Jesus is is dead. And then at the temple, and then they see the Palace of Herod. That's where all the other events. So we'll see the slide as we continue on. uh, in the series in, in the coming weeks, but this is the stuff that's happening in the last few hours of his life. These are, it's its all pretty close together. So they've left the room as we join the story tonight, and they're walking towards the Mount of Olives when the conversation between, really, Peter and Jesus, as we see, but it's probably most of the disciples that are there. Verse 26, they sing a hymn, which is tradition, after they have the, the Passover supper, they sing a hymn, and then they, they begin their walk. And so it's along this walk that you're seeing there from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane that this first conversation before we get to the prayer actually in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, you're all going to fall away from me because it's written, I will strike the shepherd, which is Jesus, and the sheep will scatter. That's a direct quote from Zechariah 13.7. And then Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus here is making a promise of resurrection And reconciliation. I want to, there's some religious words and stuff that's there. I want to boil this down to what Jesus has has just said to these disciples. The heart of Jesus' statements in Mark 14, 27 through 28 You will run away from me in my time of trouble, I'll still love you. See the, the gospel all over that. In verses 27 and 28, that's what Jesus is communicating. This is about to get really, really hard for me, and you're going to run away, but I'm going to stay on mission. And I want to just pause for a second. And when when we come at a passage of Scripture that's that's very familiar to us, like the Garden of of Gethsemane is, and as he's praying in the garden, we we can pass by some really, really important stuff. Get get to the heart of, of that statement, and Jesus most profound time of struggle, most profound time of, of at a crossroads. Jesus goes to the garden to pray so that God will fill him with resolve to do this really, really physically and spiritually hard thing. And in the middle of it, his closest guys are running from him, but that does not deter Jesus from his mission. And we can connect with that. I hope that, that you're smart enough to, to connect with the beauty of that. We're so utterly filled with sin, so utterly filled with selfishness, so just like Peter. Jesus, here's what I'm going to do for you. And then we fail when we say we make, we make all these promises to Jesus. But the beautiful part that we see from verse 27 and 28 is that has no bearing on whether Christ will continue on his purpose and his mission for your life and for your heart. And I, I, I hope that brings you great courage and strength. It ought to. And the second thing is, verse 28 says, after I'm raised up, I'm going I'm to be struck. I'm the shepherd. I'm going to be struck. And then I'm going to raise up, and I'll meet you again. The second statement is, I'm greater than our enemy. There's struggle in your life. There's struggle in my life. There's struggle in the lives of the people that we love. But the fact of the matter is, this in this great struggle, this, this massive struggle, The world, the the fate of all of mankind and redemption hangs on the things that Jesus is going to do in the next few hours. And Jesus, before he encounters them, says, I'm going to raise, I'm going to rise, and I'm going to meet you again. He's stronger than our enemy. Take strength in that. Two beautiful things. This is the gospel Christ is is laying out to us. You're going to screw up, but I'm still going to do what I promise I'm going to do. And there's nothing that can stop me. I'm greater than our enemy. There's profound strength in gospel that's there. And I I want us all to to come to grips with that fact. But what does Peter do? In the midst of of Jesus laying out this beautiful picture of the gospel, Peter is so self-focused, so religion-focused, so Jesus, here's what I'm going to do for you, focused, that he missed out on the beauty of what Jesus just said. Verse 29, Peter says, even though they fall away, I will not. In other words, Jesus, you're either lying or you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus says, you're going to scatter. Not only do I think you're going to scatter, but the prophet Zechariah prophesied that you will scatter. The next breath, Peter says, no, 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 no. you got it wrong. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to be this religious guy and stay with you. I'm going to stay being your boy. And I I want to bring something to light here. It's something that God has begun to to speak to my heart, the philosophical and the practical. Philosophically speaking, Peter was probably telling the truth. He He had every intention of following Jesus. No way am I going to scatter. Philosophically speaking, we can sit here as people who come to church and think to ourselves and say to ourselves, I'm going to follow God no matter what. Practically speaking, it was another story. We'll get to that in, in a bit as we talk about the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the philosophical and the practical. So many times in our lives, we want to hold on to the, the philosophical. We want to hear hold on to the spiritual. But practically speaking, we have a weak flesh. And the beauty is that no matter, despite the fact that we have a weak flesh, Jesus is going to continue to be who Jesus is. And it's not dependent upon what we do or what we don't do. Jesus says, You are going to be faithful, but I'm going to be, you're going to be unfaithful, I'm sorry, but I am going to be faithful and provide for you. So, verse 30, Jesus continues here and says back to him, Truly I say to you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So he says, Jesus says that you're going to scatter. Peter says, no. Jesus says, wait a second. Not only are you going to scatter, but you're going to be faced with people. And Jesus knows that one of them is like a 13-year-old girl. He's scared of a 13-year-old girl. And he says, I don't know this guy. Not only are you going to scatter, but you're going to deny me three times. You'll deny me face-to-face. By men. And more pride, more self centeredness, more philosophical versus practical here. Peter is prideful and self focused on what he's going to do for God. Then the narrative transitions into the garden. This is they've been walking along from the upper room to the garden having this conversation. Jesus is saying, You're going to run away, but I'm going to stay faithful. And Peter saying, No, I'm not going to run away. And now we've gotten to the garden. So, we walk into a new room in this museum, a new picture of the life of Christ. So why does this appear here? Why does Mark decide to put this here? William Lane, a commentary uh, commentator that I read, says this, by locating the episode between the prophecy of desertion and its fulfillment, Mark emphasized that Jesus had to face his hour of crisis utterly alone. You follow that? The what, what's happening here, we are on the, if there's three parts to this story, it's the prophecy of desertion, and then the garden, and then the fulfillment of the desertion. He's placing us here and emphasizing it for the Roman Christians who face the dilemmas that they face that I talked about before, and for us to connect with, that Jesus is utterly alone in his greatest hour of need, and the ironic thing is that the people that are leaving him alone, that he's poured his life into, are the people that, the, the, the reason he's existing, the reason that he's doing this, are the people that are, that are running away from him in this very moment. And it's a beautiful thing, and it intensifies the gospel. Here it is. Jesus gets to the garden, and he says, wait here to the other, there's 11 disciples around him, he says, wait here to the other eight, then he brings Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden with him, and says, "I really want you guys to stop, and I want you, want you guys to sit and pray because I'm going to go off a little bit further and pray to God because this is a really, really intense, important time. And remember, we have, you know, we left this this story back in like mid November when that was the last time we saw the the stuff in in the the upper room, and now we've, you know, Christmas has happened and all that stuff. But we need to, to connect with the fact that these guys are fully aware. It's been a really, really intense three days for them. Jesus has slapped around people and probably physically slapped around people in the temple, turned over the tables and been really, really angry. And then he's gotten alone with his disciples and they've had their last supper and there's somebody going to betray them. And now he's been in the face of Peter and Peter's been in his face back and forth. It's a really, really intense time. And everybody is probably really tired. Pick it up in verse 36 where Jesus begins to pray. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? In the face of this hardship, Jesus is two very profound things. He is alone physically and he is alone spiritually. And at the same time, in the, in the face of, of their sin, he continues on on his mission of salvation, of redemption. I don't want to skip past. I, I want you guys to your minds to, to land On that. I I look for the gospel everywhere, all throughout scripture, all throughout life, and never is it more profound than here in this moment. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine, and we are more accepted than we could ever hope. Look at Peter and James and John, the three most intimate disciples with Jesus, and in Christ's most important hour of need, they are falling away. They are deep in their sin. And it doesn't deter Jesus one bit. man that's got to empower us to live. There's been moments in in life in the last few weeks where people around me and 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 I have I've, people around me have disappointed me and I've disappointed people around them in, to them and at the the heart of it is I wanted to say. Put it it behind you. Leave it alone because we've got bigger things to do. And that's so many times when we are face-to-face with sin or even face-to-face with our own sin, it's really hard to put it away. It's really hard to put it behind us and continue on mission. But look at Jesus here. These guys are slapping him in the face in his greatest hour of need in this really intense moment. Imagine something vastly important to you, and the closest people in your life totally denying you, totally forgetting them. I don't care about you. I care more about myself. I'm going to go to sleep when you have this massively important thing going on in your life. Imagine, uh, I've, I've got a friend in in the hospital, uh, a, a really clo- a former really close friend of mine, I, I've kind of lost touch with him through time and whatever. His brother uh, got diagnosed with, with brain cancer and it's like level three and uh, the doctors have said, probably in a year you're not going to be around. Uh, really intense moment for them. Imagine his wife, the doctor comes in to give him this news, and imagine his wife saying, I think I'll go get a soda now, you can tell me, whatever the doctor says, you can tell me later. Or, I'm really, really tired. Sit in the hospital tonight by yourself. I'm going to go home, make sure I get a, a good night's sleep. You know, it's just, it's just brain cancer. It's not that big a deal. In the midst of that, that that's what's happening here. It's, it, it's actually a hundred times worse than that because now Jesus, who's always been in communion with his Father, is going to have a moment where he's not. Three days where he's not. But Christ, in the middle of that, disappointment and that failure and that letdown doesn't stop from his mission even for a moment and it's beauty and and this is what I, I don't want us to miss the sheer beauty of this these are not a all that artistic or or visual of a guy but this is this whole series has been themed on walking through a museum on images of Jesus. And, and I don't want us to, to pass by this unbelievable, beautiful picture of Christ and the gospel. We are so unfaithful, but it has no bearing on the faithfulness of our, of our father. And that's that has to motivate us. when When we see failure happen and it not be held against us in my heart, maybe i'm I'm strange, but in my heart, that makes me want to just follow and worship and give all that I am to that person to that Jesus, get lost in the beauty of what's happening. so this happens. Three times, Jesus goes away to pray, comes back and finds his disciples being unfaithful. Three different times. In verse 38, Jesus brings this. to pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to stop and think and talk for just a bit about that phrase. The spirit is willing, but the flesh. Is weak. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7, verses you might be familiar with. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. There's a lot of do's in there. Let me read that again to not confuse us. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate, the philosophical versus the practical. The, I'm sure in Peter's mind, he wanted to not fall asleep. I'm sure in Peter's mind, he, he, there was no way he was ever going to deny Jesus. But practically speaking, that's what happened. And Paul is writing to the Romans that this is what happens in our lives. We are sinful people. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that is good, so it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is Scripture. This is God's holy word. God revealing his character and God revealing your character. Understand that. You have the ability, you have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. And, and what the cross speaks to that is, it doesn't matter, I've provided. What the cross speaks to Peter's, no way, Jesus, I'm never going to do that. What the cross speaks to that is, it doesn't matter, I've provided. Live the beauty of that. What the the cross speaks to to your philosophical versus practical, yes, Jesus, I, I will follow you. Yes, Jesus, I will stay on mission in my life. Yes, Jesus, I will not do the things that you've called me not to. Yes, Jesus, I will do, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Nothing that we do jeopardizes our salvation and our our life and our gazing upon the beauty of Christ and what we have to come to the core of that. I want to say one last thing, a simple, simple phrase I've prayed will just bury into the depths of our spirit and our brains. Our Unfaithfulness never deters Jesus. Our unfaithfulness never deters Jesus. The truth of that, the seed of that, has to germinate and, and sprout and just bring worship to our hearts, just bring obedience to our lives. This God is so beautiful. Our unfaithfulness doesn't deter him. That makes my heart want to please this God. It's the gospel and it's beautiful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your son. Thank you for the the beauty of his actions. God, I pray now. I, I pray that you would just cause our hearts to fall flat before you. God you have made my heart and I I pray that you've made the hearts of, of these hearers in this room tonight fully aware of our unfaithfulness but you have shown us this beautiful image of your son. in the very face of unfaithfulness, staying and remaining faithful. God, your word talks about us as an adulterous generation. You even had a prophet marry a prostitute to show us. God, we are that adulterous prostitute. God, but you are this... Perfect and loving Father. God, break our hearts. Show us where we are, Peter, saying, No way, Jesus, we will never, ever abandon you. And in the next breath, we abandon you. But your acceptance of us never changes. And God, may that seed germinate into obedience God may it germinate into a life bringing glory and honor to you God connect our hearts with yours tonight allow us to respond in worship allow us to respond in obedience I thank you for Jesus it's in his perfect and faithful name that I pray Amen